Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows. Handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Simone Benson, Morgan State in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Isaiah Smalls, and I attend Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome back to HBC 468, if you're just now joining us. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with three of the Roden Fellows, Simone Benson from Morgan State College, the best in the world because I went there, Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse, and Donovan Dooley from Morgan's arch rival, North Carolina A&T. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't believe it, but it's already been, wow, it's been a year since the great Muhammad Ali uh, passed away. Uh, he gracefully bowed out of his fight with respiratory complications at the age of 74 in Phoenix, Arizona. On June 3rd, 2016, he left behind a wife, three ex-wives, nine children, and countless millions of fans. ESPN senior writer Tom Janot joins us today to talk about Ali's death and what happened. He was the author of uh, an incredible, incredible story uh, for ESPN.com. He's going to talk about Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's our, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Uh, you know, before we begin, Tom, um, I'd just like to hear from the fellows briefly about how each of them learned about Ali. I mean, his last fight was in 1981, which is at least 10 years before any of you guys were born. Um, just just <laughs> final thoughts, Simone, Isaiah, Donovan. Um, so for me, as a Simone from Morgan State in Baltimore, um, for me, I heard about him because I used to sit with my father. He's a huge boxing fan. And he used to watch his old fights. And just knowing um, Muhammad Ali's legacy in general, just knowing that, you know, hearing about him and understanding his personality. And, you know, I'm outspoken, so I kind of bonded with him being outspoken, a little bit of a trash talker. So um, that's definitely how I've heard about him. And yeah, this is Isaiah from Morehouse College. Uh, I actually first heard about him when I was younger. I had a placemat of, you know, uh, black figures in history. And so Muhammad Ali was one of them. And so I just, from a very young age, I had always I had always seen that. And I, when I grew, grew older, I tried to do some research and watched some of his fights. And I saw that he had just such an amazing self-confidence. And, you know, he was the greatest boxer that I'd seen with my eyes, you know, just from looking at videos. And I tried to embody that, you know, that's that same self-confidence in everything I do. Yeah, this is Donovan from North Carolina A&T. Um, basically, like, my first interaction of hearing about Ali was when I was having a conversation with my dad about who the greatest of all time was. And I kept referring to, is Michael Jordan the greatest of all time? Is this is this person the greatest of all time? Is that person the greatest of all, of all time? And then he came and he told me, do you not know about Muhammad Ali? And I was really young at the time. I was like, who's Muhammad Ali? And from that point on, I've been fascinated with the man doing research about him. Just even when I'm older now, just doing research about his works that he did in the in the community for the African-American community, for the Islamic community. Uh, it's his stance that he took. And it's just very, just an incredible man that I didn't know about when I was younger, but have learned to know a lot about. Hey, hey, Donovan says he's younger. I mean, older time. He's like, what, 19, Donovan? Yeah, I'm 19. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Tom, Tom, you've written a, 
I've written an incredible, incredible story about the last days of uh, Ali's life and the days that follow. I mean, from cleaning and embalming the body to dealing with the politics at the funeral to Ollie's wife visiting the grave a year later. What, what attracted you to the story, Tom? And uh, were, were you always an Ollie fan? Yeah, um, unlike uh, my 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 you know the guests on on this show, um, and more like you, Bill. Uh, I I was uh, born um, at a time when I could uh, be you know grow up in the thick of Ali's career. Um, I was. 16 when he mm. beat George Foreman and if anybody right now asked me you know of all the uh, sporting moments that I've seen what was the one that had the most effect on me uh it was absolutely Ali beating Foreman because at the time nobody thought that Ali beat, could beat Foreman and I remember watch I watched that fight on closed circuit at Nassau Coliseum in, uh, mm. in Long Island and I was there with my brother and watching him settle into the ropes and screaming, no, no, get off. You know, he, was, he had kept on saying that he was going to he was going to dance his way through that thing. And all of a sudden he's on the ropes and Foreman is sitting there swinging. And then and then you realize that he is, oh, my God, he's laying a trap. And for a for a 16 year old kid to to realize that that the mind could have that kind of uh, effect in a battle of bodies was was really one of the was one of the great moments of you know my life as a spectator of sporting events and and you know certainly the most powerful moment that um, you know will stay with me and has stayed with me forever. Um, I when um, I first came to ESPN, um, one of the first stories. Because that was a year ago. Um, I, I um, had left Esquire magazine after 20 years, and when I came to ESPN, one of the first stories that I proposed was on Ali. Um, he was, at that time, still alive. But um, I wanted to do a story of his last days because I had the feeling that his last days um, would reflect deeply his life as a Muslim. And I was of the belief that um, that that was a story that needed to be written, was a story of, of Muhammad Ali as a Muslim because of, you know, what was going on politically um, at the time. Shortly um, after I, you know, sort of, you know, agreed to come to ESPN was when he died. And I didn't, you know, know what was going, going to become of my plans. But I, I called an imam um, in Los Angeles who was a friend of mine the day after he died. And I asked, you know, what, what happens next? And uh, over the next hour, he described to me um, the body washing process. And as soon as I heard all that, I knew that I had to write that story, the story of what happened to Ali from the moment he died to the moment he was buried. Hi, Tom. This is uh, Isaiah from Morehouse. Uh, the scenes you described are incredible, from Ali's last breath to, you know, the cleaning of the body to the Turkish president's arrival to something as simple as his casket. You know, were, were you able to attend his funeral and how did you achieve this type of access? Um, I was not able to attend his funeral. I wasn't even uh, working for ESPN, you know, technically or formally um, at that time. 
you know, I watched I watched some of it on TV. I was, you know, I was just a, a person at home watching the coverage. But having talked to the imam in Los Angeles, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And once I started with ESPN and started writing a few stories, you know, I decided to go out to um, basically just to, to Louisville and just start asking questions. And, you know, it was a, it was a really interesting process because really, um, you know, I drove up to Louisville from, from Atlanta and then I, the, my, really the only thing that I knew was that his uh, gravestone came from an old business in downtown Louisville called Muldoon Monuments. And I walked into there from the street, you know, it was a, it was a, it's a, a, a gravestone um, dealer. And um, I wound up talking uh, to a guy um, named Colin McBroom, and he said that he had he had designed and you know basically done all the work on Allie's tombstone. And the thing that he said that interested me at that moment was that he had been working on it for years. That Lonnie Ali had come in um, years before and commissioned him to do the tombstone and that he had begun designing it then and he had actually designed laid out on his table but it was secret the whole time he had to sign a non-disclosure agreement that you know basically bound him to secrecy that he was doing this because nobody nobody could talk of the fact that they were you know you know some time ago now uh, planning Ali's funeral and so he had this design on his desk of Ali's tombstone, but he could never put the name Ali on it. And, you know, I listened to him talk um, for an hour and a half about that process and was mesmerized. And, you know, as soon as I walked out of there, I knew I had a story. And that's essentially what happened there was what happened with the story from beginning to end. I just would, I would walk up to somebody and I'd say, you know, can you tell me what you did the week that Muhammad Ali died or what you did to help bury Muhammad Ali. And, you know, an hour and a half later, um, I would, I would go home or two hours later, I would end the interview. It was just a, it was just a remarkable process from beginning to end. I can't tell you how many times I got chills talking to people. Wow. This is Donovan from A and T for North Carolina A and T. Um, I just hey, have Donovan. a quick question. What was what was the most challenging and most gratifying part about writing the story? And can you take me a little deeper into how you developed your story arc? Well, sure. Um, I mean, the the most gratifying was, I guess, last night <laughs> when I sent it, when I sent it off and and it was done. But. Um, right. But but also but also um, I have to say that there was a there was one interview that I felt that I needed or actually two interviews that I felt that I needed the whole time um, and one was with the body washer um, because that was the interview that originally gave me the impetus to write the story I knew that I wanted that that's that part of the puzzle I knew that I wanted. Wow. To, to get that kind of of, of intimacy um, with with Muhammad Ali, you know, in 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 death, and um, and so I knew that when I interviewed uh, Ahmad Iwais, who was the the body washer in Tempe, Tempe Arizona, 
I knew I had the story. Um, I did not know that I'd be able to interview Lonnie Ali. I wasn't sure about that. She came in at the very end. And I didn't know how important that Lonnie was going to be to the story. Um, but she gave me the emotional arc of the story, as it turned out. I mean, I, I, was, I was halfway through writing the story when I interviewed Lonnie. But the, the, the depth of emotion that she provided to the story was yeah, absolutely to the story. I don't know how I would have written it without, to be honest, with looking, you know, looking back on it. Um, but as far as as far as developing the arc of the story, it was you know it was a you know it was a classic process. You know, as a writer, I was you know stepping all over my own feet as a writer when I was going through my first draft. I had written I don't know two or three thousand words, and I you know I called my I called my editor. I called Eric Neal at at ESPN, and I was like, you know, man, you know, I've I've done you know countless hours of of interviewing for this story, and I can't tell you how many times I got chills doing those interviews, but I've written 3000 words and there's no chills to be had in this story. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not delivering. And, you know, Eric, you know, he's just like, you know, he's, he's a really laid back character and a, a great editor. And he was like, well, just go with the chills. And that's what I did. You know, I mean, I, I, be, I began, I began just writing those things that had moved me so deeply. And the, um, the first thing that I wrote was, um, you know, Imam um, Zaid Shakir um, spontaneously singing the, um, the Muslim call to prayer. As Ali was dying, um, when I had interviewed him, he told me that that had given me chills. It gives me chills right now as I'm talking to you. And um, so that was the first thing I wrote. And then I, I added actually a sort of a preamble to that once I spoke to Lonnie, because I wanted to get Lonnie into the story as soon as possible. But I just kept on following um, the things that um, had really most deeply affected me in the course of my reporting. And just wrote them all. Essentially, I, there wasn't a lot of complexity to um, the arc of the story. I just, I just followed, uh, followed the chills. Essentially. So um, I wanted to ask, this is Simone from Morgan State. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned Lonnie, which is uh, Ali's wife, that she, you know, she came in at the end and, you know, you really, really, you know, were surprised, you really were surprised about what you, you know, were able, what she was talking about and just her in general. I want to ask you, how was it working with Lonnie and um, did she surprise you in any way? Yeah, she surprised me from the very beginning because I had formed an opinion on about her that was just sort of a, a, a reading of her time with him. I mean, she had she had been a, a caregiver to him before she married him. And, you know, she, he was, you know, already, um, you know, had in the grip of Parkinson's when when they were married. So it was my assumption that she sort of reconciled herself to becoming his widow at the same time as 
she became his wife. It was just sort of my reading of the situation, my take of the situation. And I, I had thought because that she'd been planning the funeral for so long that she'd been preparing for his death for an equal amount of time. But that's not the way it was. I mean, she, from the beginning of our, our conversation, just said that she was not prepared at all, that she was in shock when he died, that he um, was actually, you know, she saw him in to be in good health, you know, considering considering that he, you know, had, you know, serious complications of Parkinson's yeah. disease, and that he, and that really that he, what happened was is that he got a cold, and that when he um, went into the hospital, he, you know, she had, you know, she took him there as a precaution, and that, you know, he was. Um, dead within days, and that was a, just a complete shock to her. And and I guess and that was the other thing. I I had I had always thought that she was his caregiver from beginning to end. That you know that she took care of him, and that was sort of the defining aspect of of her role in the marriage. What made you assume, what made you, what, what, what directly, before you went into it, because um, I know you said that, you know, when she came, she came into it later, um, what made you actually think that, you know, just having that assumption in general of, you know. Well, it was just my, it was my assumption, you know, a lot of people had written about Lonnie as, as the person who basically had, had saved Muhammad Ali, you know, had saved the, the, the enterprise known as Muhammad Ali, that when, that when um, you know, he, had, he was, you know, not particularly healthy in any way, including financially, when they were married, and that, and that basically that she restored him in, in, in very many ways, that she operated as his, as his protector and gatekeeper and caregiver. So, you know, these were all just so, you know, knowing some of that or hearing some of that, you know, my assumptions was that those were her roles. And it was just, it was really based on nothing more than just, you know, uh, an educated guess on my part. Right. But, you know, but what, you know, one of the best things that can happen to you as a journalist is to be proven wrong. And I was proven wrong when I, when I, when I met Lonnie. She, um, was still in shock over losing him. She was still um, desperately sad over losing him. She wept copiously and freely during our interview, and she made it clear to me in very, very passionate and beautiful ways that what he was to her um, all along was um, a husband and that she was his wife. And you know, that was the emotional backbone that my reporting was missing until I met her. This is uh, Isaiah from Morehouse. Uh, just switching gears a little bit, you've had a very accomplished writing career. And the subjects of your pieces have varied from, you know, doctors who perform abortions to sexual predators to now world-famous boxer activists. Um, how do you go about choosing your stories? Um, you know, I, I just I, I go by by instincts. I, you know, I really kind of go by feel. What are the things that are, um, you know, affect me emotionally, and the things that you know often 
affect me emotionally are 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 stories that have sort of um, the A get to something elemental that are you know um, life and death, like this story or the story that I wrote for Esquire, you know, the Falling Man, or the story that I wrote for GQ, you know, the Abortionist. Those are all. No, those are all about life and death, and because they were about life and death, you know, there was a, there was a, a you know, almost a, a barrier around them that had to be um, breached in order to, to get the story. And, you know, when I was first writing the story of The Falling Man, I mean, people were, I couldn't believe that I was writing a story about people um, who had, you know, jumped from the, um, the World Trade Center on 9/11. That that seemed to be because uh, that was a taboo subject at the time, and that seemed to be you know a, a violation of these people. Um, you know, I think that I that the story you know proved them wrong, and you know, and the story you know with Ali. I mean, his. I don't think that the story of his death has been told yet, and I think it's you know it's been told here. Um, and I, I, you know, I hope that I, I, I give it the same sort of um, respect and almost, um, you know, not, not just respect, but sort of um, acknowledgement that it's, that there's like, like a sacredness at the heart of the material. I hope that that is, you know, is, is in this piece. Uh, just, just taking something from uh, what you just said, how are you... Um able to pry such, you know, specific emotions from just brief interactions uh, with Ali. So, for example, I know you were talking about this security team hired to um, just watch over the body. You, you wrote something that was very powerful. Uh, they encounter uh, Ali dead, yet even with his life uh, fled, his power persi- persists as if it's put, uh, uh, as it's part of the atmosphere around his body. It's pa- And it's, I really like that line because it's powerful because it, it speaks to just how larger than life Ali really was, even in his passing. So, again, you know, how are you able to pry such specific emotions just from brief interactions? Well, I was, I was um, hoping, you know, with the story that the that the story of his death would be sort of a measure of his life. You know, like how big his life was that he was still, you know, affecting uh, people even in death. And that's 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 what it turned out to be. I mean, the interviews in this story, um, they were gifts. I mean, they really were. Um, they were like like little parcels of grace um, because I didn't have to do much. All I had to do was was you know basically ask people tell me tell me about your involvement with Muhammad Ali the week that he died. Or tell me, tell me your role in his burial, and I just, I would just kind of sit there and, and listen, and and these people w- would tell me, you know, their experiences, and not just like what they did, but how they felt and how it affected them, because they were all affected, and that was, I mean, that that is the heart of this story, is that you know, the, is that people from all walks of life you know, walked into, you know, the proximity of, of Muhammad Ali after he died and were moved in, you know, very, very um, specific and powerful ways. And they wanted to tell me that story. 
I mean, everybody that I spoke to, this you know, that wasn't this was not a story where where I had to you know um, get something out of these people. They they handed it to me, and it was um, it was you know really one of the great experiences I've had as a journalist. Hello, Mr. Janoa. This is Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T. Uh, just one last question. Um, what do you, as your, as your audience reads your story, what do you think is the biggest and most significant thing that your audience should take from your story? That's a great question. Um, you know, to me, the 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 preciousness of this of this one man's life. Um, is the thing, and and how and how death and how death revealed that. I mean, I don't know if I've written too many other stories where I've gotten choked up writing them, and but this was a story where I got I got choked up writing some of those sections. The section where they check here spontaneously recites the call to prayer as Muhammad Ali is dying. I mean, I, I can't to this day read that without becoming emotional. I can't read right. the the part about Zaid Shakir washing his body and calling his assistants over and saying, look, you know, at his face, you know, right right, right when he's about to apply the perfume. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you right now and getting emotional. So so there's there's an intimacy to the story that you know i hope cuts through what people think that they know about uh muhammad ali i mean everybody's you know heard an awful lot about muhammad ali since he died but this is a story that i hope you know um reveals you know just how precious this life was right just that's very interesting that you say that i just have one quick follow-up in in your opinion how do you feel that we should mark his anniversary of his death? How do you feel like that we should celebrate Ali? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that I think that the, I mean, why was why was he so? Why is his presence so powerful? Is the question is the question that, you know, um, I think that we should all ask ourselves. You know, and I and I, I hope that this story sort of provides you know, a, a few of those answers, but, you know, I guess my question is, is, you know, would, would he have been the man he was if he stayed Cassius Clay? Um, my, my feeling is that he wouldn't have been, my feeling is that he would have been a great sports hero and a sports idol, but he wouldn't have been a transcendent sports hero. And he wouldn't have been a transcendent American, but he was a guy who was there to answer the call virtually every time he was called. And so, you know, when he, I say in the story, you know, when he was called upon to fight, he fought. When he was called upon to make peace, he made peace. And when he was called upon to become Muhammad Ali, he changed his name from Cassius Clay and he became Muhammad Ali. And that, you know, to me is is the is the overriding message of of his life. I know that, you know, a lot of people look at, you know, what he did, um, you know, the people he helped. 
and the, his, you know, kind of ecumenical message in the last, you know, 20 years, 30 years of his life. But the fact that he was always sort of, you know, willing to answer the call or answer the bell, if you will, is, is the is the thing that, that is, to me, the source of his power and the thing that should be, you know, contemplated and kind of meditated on uh, as, as we come to the anniversary of his death. Well, Tom, we loved your piece, and it was absolutely riveting. And we just thank you so much for being on the show again. And thank you guys, uh, for, thank you guys for reading it and and for asking such great questions and and you know just talking about it with me. It was uh, it was yeah, quite an experience to report and write it, and it's been a, a great experience talking to you guys. Our guest has been uh, the great uh, Tom Janot, who's written a phenomenal piece on Muhammad Ali, and. Um, uh, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to come back with him, but uh, we're going to um, uh, let him go now. And Tom, thanks so much for your time, man. This is an incredible job, an incredible story. We we uh, look forward to, to having you back on and just talk about the reaction. Okay, that sounds wonderful. Thanks, guys. All right, thank you. Right, thank, thank, you. You. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. bye now. All right, take bye. care, Tom. Okay, bye. All right. Uh, now, before we close out the show, I'm going to turn it over to the fellows uh, to leave you with a few thoughts to consider. The Trump administration's recently released budget proposal has created an uproar among college students around the country. This proposal will cut federal education spending by astonishing 13.5 percent. The administration claims it will maintain the budget for minority schools and won't increase spending on HBCUs after promising it will do so during the well-publicized meeting with the HBCU president earlier this year. The proposal also affects federal grants and work-study programs, which is a huge blow to HBCU students such as myself. We rely heavily on these programs to fund our education. Thousands of Americans are protesting this budget, which has yet to be approved, but it will take more than protests to save the day. So consider this. For the hundreds of thousands of those who attend HBCUs, it's time to step up and fill the gaps with financial contributions. Following the Warriors' Game 3 win against the Spurs, Kevin Durant was asked about the lopsided victories that have come to define the 2017 NBA playoffs. His response? If you don't like it, don't watch it. Really? Don't watch it? Although Durant did eventually apologize for his comments, they still sting. Fans watch the NBA for the competition. The NBA is home to the best basketball players in the world, and we love seeing them go head-to-head, night in, night out. This postseason has lacked any competitiveness, largely because Durant chose the title chase. The final game between the Warriors and Thunder in last year's conference finals was the most-watched NBA telecast in cable television history. Why? People wanted to see four of the game's greatest players battle for supremacy. Game 4 of this year's conference finals, however, generated only 5.8 million viewers, a decrease of 174%. Watching Steph, Clay, and KD massacre the likes of Patty Mills and Joel Anthony is terrible for the NBA. The Warriors have yet to be tested all postseason, and viewership has suffered as a result. Let's hope these NBA playoffs will provide fans a nice change of pace. The state of North Carolina finally came to its senses, and arguably the greatest player of all time will finally get to host an All-Star Weekend. The NBA announced on Wednesday that the coveted All-Star Weekend will return to Charlotte, North Carolina after a 28-year hiatus. The last time the game was held there, Hornets owner Michael Jordan won the All-Star Game MVP. 
That's a pretty long time. Charlotte was originally scheduled to host a multi-million dollar event in February 2017, but the NBA quickly changed its mind after the passing of North Carolina's House Bill 2 law, which the league and other organizations denounced as discriminatory against LGBT individuals. The NBA is finally coming back after new governor Roy Cooper repealed the law that cost the state nearly hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. He replaced it with a compromise bill that bans local governments from passing anti-discrimination ordinances for three years. It is nice to see that the state of North Carolina has finally acknowledged its mistake of enacting a bill that was idiotic, insensitive, and impossible to... Tr- to <clears throat> three, two, one. It is nice to see that the state of North Carolina has finally acknowledged its mistake of enacting a bill that was idiotic, insensitive, and impossible to truly enforce. I'm glad the NBA could help give the state a social justice wake-up call. Last February, students at Bowie State University celebrated as the men's basketball team won the CIAA tournament. Three months later, the Bowie State community is mourning the horrific death of one of its own. Lieutenant Richard Collins III was stabbed to death by a white University of Maryland student while visiting friends on the College Park campus. The unprovoked attack is being investigated as a hate crime. This is the latest instance of the black community being under siege as righteousness is under attack. These are challenging times. We live in a climate that seems to nurture hatred and fear, where some police officers and some citizens feel they can take a black life with impunity. You can fool yourself into believing that the death of a young black man, a commissioned officer in the United States Army, has nothing to do with you. But consider this. A hate crime against one is a hate crime against all. Unchecked, unchallenged racism is a beast that will eventually destroy everything in its path. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day, What Are Those, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.